Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for these women. Thank you for their hunger, for your word, that they might know you better and deeper and richer so that they might grow in Christ-likeness. Again, we are going to be looking at your example of servanthood and humility that you set before us. May your Holy Spirit convict our hearts because every one of us needs to grow in this area, dying to self constantly dying to self and being a servant and esteeming others better than ourselves. Lord, may we grow in grace in that area. And now just um, help us to concentrate on what your word has to say to us this morning, Lord. And uh, if there is one here who has never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior, knowing that he is indeed the Lord of the universe and the master of her soul, the master of her fate. We are not the master of our own fate. He is. But I pray, Lord, that she would today invite him into her heart and be born again from above by the Holy Spirit. And all the angels will thank you and praise you, and we will too. For we do pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, many, before I get into the lesson, I read something late last night. I was reading Matthew Henry. How many of you ever heard of Matthew Henry? Oh, man, that guy is deep. He can go, you think I go on and on and on about something? He can go on indefinitely about one word. But he he had this written down, and I thought, this is just so beautiful. This puts the whole picture of the Lord stooping down to wash his disciples' feet into a panoramic vision of his entire ministry. Why did he do it at the end of his ministry, the night before he was crucified? Because it was a picture of his whole ministry. Matthew Henry said this, he said, Many consider Christ washing his disciples' feet as a representation of his whole earthly ministry. He knew he was equal with God, and he knew all things were his. We just saw that last week, didn't we? One of the things he knew is that all things were put into his hands, that he's the Lord of the universe. And yet he rose from his table in glory laid aside his robes of light. You know, his garment in heaven is light. He laid aside his robe of light, girded himself with our nature. He became what? Like us. He put on himself the likeness of man. And uh, uh, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He poured out his blood. You know, not the water, but he poured out his blood, poured out his soul unto death, and thus provided a laver to wash us from our sins. So this little visual aid illustration that he gave to his men on the night before his crucifixion is really a picture of his entire ministry. Isn't that beautiful? Did you understand that? Did you follow that? Well, in this lesson, Trader at the Table, we are going to continue to look at the events that occurred during the Passover Supper. After washing the Lord's, uh, the disciples' feet, the Lord returned to his position. You know, he had been down on his knees washing their feet. So he gets up. He returns to his position at the Passover ta- table and followed up his demonstration on humility with a short discourse on humility. And it is short. It's only six verses. We'll look at it from verses 12 to 17 of John 13 there. First of all, he spoke of the requirement of humility, and then he spoke of the reward of humility, which is happiness, the reward of happiness. So let's begin by looking at part one on your outline, a serious review. And for this, we're going to look at verses 12 to 17 of John 13, starting in verse um, 12. Let's see, where am I? Okay, so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? Ye, have, ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy or blessed are ye if ye what? Do them. Not just hearers, but doers. We'll stop right there for now. 
go back and look at verse 13. By the Lord's question there, uh, um, I mean 12, excuse me, verse 12, know ye what I have done to you. He was indicating that there was indeed a spiritual application behind what he had just done, his foot washing demonstration. He was going to help Peter, who had been a little bit confused, right? Peter was a little bit mixed up. We saw that last week. And he was going to help the others to understand the meaning behind his action. He was going to take them them back to the main point of his teaching, which had to do with what? The requirement of humility in the life of a Christian servant. In verses 13 and 14, then he argues from the greater to the lesser, greater being he. You know, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this, then you, the servants, should at least do it to one another. You men call me Master and Lord, which you say well, which means in our vernacular, which you say correctly, I am Lord and Master, because I am. Do you notice that at the end of verse 13? Look, ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. I am. Circle that. He actually called himself Master, Lord, and I am. We know whose name is I am? God. So then, if I, your Lord and Master, and the great I am, have willingly humbled myself to wash your feet, don't you think it is totally reasonable? Isn't it just your reasonable service that you wash one another's feet? He had given them an example to follow. Isn't that what he said? For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now here, this is not in your notes, but I read this the other day, and I really like it, so I'm going to add it to our lesson. I like what Pastor John Butler writes about the Lord's example to us in this scene. He lists six points about service that are set forth for us by Jesus in his foot-washing example. First of all, there is the priority of service. Jesus did what? He rose up from his supper, said back in verse 4. Even though supper wasn't over, they were still eating the Passover supper, the dinner wasn't over, yet he saw that service was necessary. No one had washed the disciples' feet. He also understood after they were arguing that they needed a lesson on humility, didn't they? So even though supper wasn't over yet, he put his priority higher than the supper, higher than eating. That it was his number one priority was to serve. Like when you're hosting a meal at your house and you see someone has run out of coffee, what do you do? You leave your supper because your highest priority is your service, right? You leave your supper and if you're the host, it hostess and you go and fill their cup of coffee. So priority of service, number one. Number two, the Lord set the example in the area of preparation for service. How did he pre- prepare to serve his men by washing their feet? Well, first of all, He took off his garments. He was preparing. He took off his garments, and then he picked up a towel, and he girded himself with it. And, of course, he had to go over and get the the pitcher of water. Christian service requires preparation, does it not? Could I just get get up here and talk? Well, I probably could because I'm a talker. But could I, (laughs) without preparing my lesson, should a Sunday school teacher just get up and not, not prepare? What about a musician? Does a musician not have to practice? What about if you're going to serve somebody a meal, like we just talked about? You have to prepare the food, don't you? So service requires preparation. A lack of proper preparation is going to hinder your service. Third, there is the perspiration of service. All you mothers agree with this one. You know about this one, don't you? (laughs) The Lord not only washed 24 feet. Think about it. Each guy had two feet. He washed 24 dirty, dusty, stinky fishermen, calloused feet. I could go on and on with my adjectives. But then what did he do after he washed them? He dried them. He dried 24 feet. And in the process, we can be sure he got wet and dirty and hot. It was an upper room. What do you think of upper room? Heat rises, doesn't it? (laughs) And they didn't have air conditioning back in those days. Service is not for the lazy It's not for the lazy. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It takes a lot of work to raise those children, doesn't it? To serve your children. (sighs) A lot of work, a lot of perspiration. 
But sadly, you know, we're talking about Christian work here. And, of course, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is Christian work. But um, sadly, we find in our churches today that a lot of churchgoers are not very willing to get involved in service, are they? They say that like 10% of every church does 100% of the work. We need more people to get involved in church service. Amen. Fourth is the posture of service. He washed the disciples' feet, and the only way to do that, only way to wash another person's feet is to do what? Stoop down. He, he was probably on his knees. The Lord took a humble posture to serve. And that tells us just once again that service definitely requires humility. You have to be willing to humble yourself. And I think of the knees. It requires prayer too, doesn't it? A lot of time in prayer. Fifth, there is the performance of service. The Lord took the towel and he completed his task. He did not just superficially sprinkle a little water on each foot. You know, just a little bit of water on Peter's stinking feet. You know, he actually washed the feet completely he cleaned each individual foot and then he completely dried each individual foot it's important to do a thorough job all the way through see the job to its finish don't stop halfway it's important to do your best especially in your christian service right don't give the lord your leftover Give him your first, your priority time, your best, your very best, excellence in service. It's important to complete our tasks and not uh, quit halfway through. A lot of people just quit. They start out and then they just fizzle away and they don't finish the job. But Jesus never did that. He, you know what he could have done? He could have cleaned the feet of just the first two disciples he came to, couldn't he? Maybe John and, uh, and James cleaned their feet to set the example. And then he could have asked for a volunteer to finish the job. But he didn't do that. He did it himself, the whole job, to completion. That's how he always worked. Did Jesus ever leave anything unfinished? No. When he died on the cross, what were his last words? It is finished. It is accomplished. I've completed my task. That's why we know he's coming back again. Because everything isn't finished. Of course he's going to finish what he started and, and, and redeem this world and, you know, undo the curse. He gave every task his full attention, his full ability, and he didn't stop until the job was done. Is that not an example to follow? He said he's given us an example to follow. That's our example is the Lord. Six, there is the persistency of service. Even though there was evil in, in the midst, in their midst, that supper, Jesus wasn't hindered by his service for others. He did not let the presence of Satan, and where was Satan? Hovering over Judas, wasn't he? He didn't let the presence of Satan or the malicious thoughts of man, and they had all just been arguing, he didn't let them stay stop him from his task in fact he even did good to his enemy didn't he because along with the other 11 disciples whose other whose feet did he wash judas's he even washed judas's feet right along with the others he didn't allow the presence of the enemy to cause him to quit or to pout or to seek revenge you know he could have uh, done a little something tweaking to judas's toe there you know just took that little pinky he didn't seek revenge. So what were they? The seven, the seven uh, points about service. Priority should be a priority. The preparation for service. The perspiration of service. The posture of service. Performance of service. And the persistency of service. And I'm sorry that's not in your notes because I didn't have that book when I did the notes. All right, so back to verse 16. The Lord's point was that the servant is surely not greater than his master. If he, the master, was willing to become a servant, the servant ought at least to perform the duties of a servant. I mean, we are all servants, aren't we? So what are our duties? The duties of a servant. Yeah, we're bond slaves to the master. It's our reasonable service, as it says in Romans 12. In teaching his followers to be servants... Now, he was not pushing them down. 
You know, he wasn't he wasn't pushing them down as though they're just, you know, nothings. He was actually elevating them because God puts a very high premium on service and on sacrifice and on humility. Was the Lord pushed down because he was a servant, because he came here to not be ministered unto, but to minister? What did the Lord, the Father God do with his son because he was so willing to be a servant? He elevated him to the highest position in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Can't talk today. But so he's not pushing us down when he calls us servants. He's actually elevating us. These are the character qualities that he honors, unlike the world of men, unlike the world out there of that time and of our time. You know, back then, there was absolutely no use for humility or a meek man in the world of the Romans. They looked at meekness as weakness. And you know what meekness is? True meekness? Like Moses was a meek man. And Jesus said, I am meek and, you know, lowly of heart. What does meekness mean? It's power under control. That's true meekness. That's biblical meekness. But the Romans thought of it as weakness. And humility, oh my, that was only to be found in slaves. And the Greeks, the Greeks elevated the intellectual. They elevated the thinker. They elevated the philosopher, like, you know, Aristotle and Socrates, not the common worker. Um, and the Jews, we've talked about the Jews many, many times. We've learned that they prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture and the laws and their minute adherence to all the rituals and traditions. And so they, too, looked down on the common man, didn't they, especially the Jewish religious leaders. They knew almost nothing about humility and service for others. Did the scribes and Pharisees, were, were they all about wanting to serve the people? No, they wanted the best seats in the house, and they wanted to be served, and they wanted to be recognized when they were out in the marketplace and be called rabbi, etc. But despite what the world of the Romans or the world of the Greeks or the world of the Jews thought, the Lord Jesus gave the highest place of honor to the combination of humility and servanthood. And that's what makes the Christian faith different, our humility, turning the other cheek, that sort of thing. We're different from the world. Well, the Lord then showed his men how divine love operates. He, uh, it always, or he told them how it operates. He, it always seeks the good of others <clears throat> and considers no service too lowly or too costly to secure that good. And this was the spiritual principle, remember, taught back in the parable of the Good Samaritan, <clears throat> back in Luke 10. The Good Samaritan's compassion on the robbed and beaten traveler caused him to willingly sacrifice what? His time. Remember who walked by that robbed man, beaten man? First of all, a Levi and then a priest, a Levite and a priest. But the good Samaritan was willing to give of his time, of his energy, of his own comfort, and uh, uh, his own money to ensure the good of the other. And who is our ultimate good Samaritan? Who was the Good Samaritan a picture of? Jesus, yes. In terms of sacrificing to serve others, there was never anything that the Lord was unwilling to do, right? Even go to an old wooden cross for us. Never anything he was unwilling to do to serve others. So why should his servants be any different? We're certainly not greater than the master, are we? And that's his argument, from the greater to the lesser. Now, as an, a little aside here for a minute, I'm going to take you down an interesting path. I am sure that you are aware, or let me see a show of hands, of the fact that there are some Christians, some churches to, that teach that by way of the Lord's foot washing action here in John 13, uh, he was instituting an ordinance of the church. Have you ever heard, heard that before? foot washing as an ordinance, you know, right there, putting foot washing on an equal basis, equal level with baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. <clears throat> now, there's nothing wrong. I have no problem at all with churches that practice foot washing. 
Actually, Tramway Baptist does once a year. They have a foot washing service. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And we can admire and we can respect the desire of these people to obey the Lord. And I see absolutely nothing wrong with their demonstration of loving, humble servanthood toward one another. Do you? I mean, if that's what they want to do to show how much they love one another, that's fine. I have no problem with that. However, I do have a problem with those who would say that Christ here was advocating a formal, ritualistic, foot-washing service that was to become a church ordinance, you know, on the same level with baptism and communion. If verse 15, and that's the verse they use, um, those that say it's an ordinance, if verse 15 where he says, you should do as I have done to you, is used to insist upon literal foot washing, you know, whether they do it once a month or once, twice a year, I don't know how many times they do it, those who consider it an ordinance. But to use that verse to insist on literal foot washing, um, that the primary meaning as well as the spirit of the whole John 13 passage is missed. If you do that, if you just take it literally like that and you make it an ordinance, you miss the whole spiritual meaning of the passage. Jesus was teaching his men by that example to have a new attitude, a humble, submissive servanthood attitude. He was not showing them a new action that they had to perform. He was teaching them the importance of having uh, attitude, the attitude of a humble servant. He wanted his men, like he always did, to look beyond the literal act of foot washing. Just like when he said, you know, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. He wasn't talking literally. He was talking, you know, look beyond that. I'm talking spiritually that you in, need to take me in, personalize. He's, he's, he's talking about the symbolic spiritual significance of his foot washing demonstration. Um, I wonder if any of you know what it takes to make something a church ordinance. How did, how did the early church decide on how that baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper, were to be considered ordinances of the church? Well, has anybody ever studied that before? We just, we just follow, don't we? We say, okay, well, it's an ordinance, we'll do it. <laughs> but we should know there are three requirements to make an action um, qualify to be a church ordinance. Number one, it must be something that is presented by the Lord himself in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number two, it must be practiced by the early church, the New Testament early church in the book of Acts. And number three, it must be expounded upon doctrinally in the New Testament epistles. So in other words, for something to be considered a church ordinance, it must be found throughout the New Testament. Something Jesus did, recorded for us in the four Gospels. Something the apostles and the young church did during its transitional phase in the book of Acts. And then something that the Holy, the Holy Spirit inspired one of the apostles to expand upon in the rest of the New Testament. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper meet these three requirements. Okay? But the practice of foot washing is never demonstrated as a practice of the church in the book of Acts. The early church didn't get together and wash each other's feet. Now, some of them may have, you know, when they came in, they might have done it, but they didn't do it as a church body. They did get together and have baptismal services, and they did get together, and they participated in the Lord's Supper, right? But not foot washing. And foot washing is mentioned only one time in the whole rest of the New Testament, and that's in 1 Timothy 5.10, and it merely refers to the custom of washing a guest's feet when they entered into your home. So it doesn't qualify as a church ordinance. The Lord's visual lesson on genuine humility is minimized if we only focus on a literal, ritualistic, required type of foot washing practice. And Jesus wasn't trying to focus us on a ritual. He was trying to emphasize the practical humility which we should exhibit in every area of our lives and in every experience of our lives not just something that we would come together once or twice a year to participate in. And, you know, back then it was a service. It was a service. 
it wouldn't be a service today. You know, we don't walk everywhere we go, do we? How, do we, how did most of you get here this morning? How many of you walked? Probably one. We do. <laughs> yeah, you would walk because she lives right next door. But the rest of us got in our cars and, and we drove. So when we got here, do our feet need cleaning? Well, I'm not going to examine your feet. <laughs> I can guarantee you that if you and I, if we all got together with the men in the church, you know, to wash each other's feet, every one of us would come here pedicured, pumiced, and painted. <laughs> the whole nine yards. I would not come here with stinky feet. And I would be embarrassed to death to have anybody wash my big size 12 feet. Wouldn't you? Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> And which is easier? I mean, you know, that is, it is easier to make that a, a practice of the church than to really apply it to our lives. Wouldn't it be easier to come here once or twice a year and wash each other's feet? You know, that wouldn't take humility, really. You know, get a clothespin on our noses. <laughs> no, but it's easier to participate in something like that than to really be a humble servant your whole life, you know, every day of the year. So a lot of people do it because then they think they're making the requirement and they're not really humble. They just do foot washing once a year. It's obvious that the Lord did not have literal foot washing in mind for his followers to observe as a mandatory church ordinance. Just in his words to Peter in verse 7, where he said, "What?" look back at verse 7. He said uh, to Peter, what I do thou knowest not now? We know just in those words that he was not speaking of literal foot washing because otherwise Peter obviously could have responded and said of course I know what you're doing I know exactly what you're doing Lord you're washing my feet so you know even Peter understood that he was talking about something more than literal foot washing also remember that he said to Peter in verse 8 if I wash thee not thou hast no part in me well we certainly know that there are millions of believers past and present who have a part in Christ, who are in Christ born again, they have a part in Christ and yet never have practiced foot washing as a part of their church uh, experience, their Christian experience or as a church ordinance. I have never participated in a foot washing. And I, you know, and I think it's wonderful, but I have never, have, have any of you? And it's a great thing that they do, but I have never personally been involved in one, and yet I know I am in Christ. I know I have been born again. And if foot washing was what it entailed to have a part with Christ, this would have included who? Judas. It would have included Judas because his feet were cleaned right along with the others. So if if foot washing was to be a church ordinance, why did the Lord wash Judas's feet but then dismiss Judas before he initiated what? The Lord's Supper, which is indeed a true church ordinance. Judas was not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Why, you know, wouldn't that have been inconsistent if he washed his feet and that was a church ordinance, but he dismissed him before the Lord's Supper? That would be inconsistent. We know the Lord isn't inconsistent. And then, too, when the Lord asked the question of his men in verse 12, Know ye what I have done to you? This was, again, a further indication that his act of foot washing has a spiritual meaning. And what was the spiritual principle behind the Lord's washing of the disciples' feet? It was the principle of agape love, divine, unconditional love in action. But... He goes on to say, it isn't enough just to talk about love and humility and service and sacrifice. We must put those things into practice. Must put them into practice. Blessings come in doing. Obedience is what pleases our Heavenly Father. And pleasing Him, guess what? Results in happiness. Pleasing the Father results in blessedness, happiness. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Would you like a God-given clue on how to be happy? How many of you want to be happy? If you're happy and you know it, clap. <laughs> that song team. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be happy, that doesn't want to be blessed by God. Well, he gives, the Lord gives us a clue. This is what he does in verse 17. To be happy, he says, we must first know some things. If ye know these things, he said. And secondly, what does he said? You must do them. Happy are ye if ye do them. 
So let's look at this. What must we know? I want to be happy, so what do I have to know? He says, if you know these things. Well, if we look back at the preceding verses, we find that these things refer, first of all, to a sincere admission that Jesus is indeed our master and our Lord, that he is indeed I am. That's called practical righteousness. You cannot truly be blessed. You cannot truly have happiness if you are not born again and recognize that Jesus is indeed Master, Lord, and the great I Am. Second, these things refer to a willingness to place our feet, so to speak, our walk um, into, into Christ's holy hands for cleansing. You know, feet symbolize our walk. So we need to make sure that our walk with the Lord is unhindered. And how, we do, how do we do that on a daily basis? By putting our feet into his holy hands and confessing our sins and keeping ourselves in communion and fellowship with the Lord by the washing of the water of the word. And then, and that speaks of our practical holiness. So the first is positional holiness, knowing he's Lord. Second is our practical holiness, our practical walk with the Lord. And then third, the third thing, when we go back and look at the verses, involves our humility, both before God and before our fellow man. So these are the things we must know. But a mere knowledge of them without action means absolutely nothing. Happiness, Jesus says, comes in doing them. And notice he didn't say, happy are ye if these things be done unto you. Did he? He didn't say that. He said, happy are ye if ye do them. And the verb do, by the way, is given in the continuous tense. So it means happy are you if you continue doing them. You know, most people tend to think that they would really be happy if others would just love them the way they think they deserve to be loved, right? I could really be happy if everybody would just show me some love. You know, doesn't say slave up here. <laughs> um, and if people would really appreciate us for, for who, how wonderful we are. You know, if others would just be readily available to serve us and meet all of our needs. And then that's how most people think that they can find happiness. But people like that aren't really happy. They can have a million servants and still not be happy, right? That's not how you get true, true blessedness. That it's the complete opposite, actually, of what the Lord teaches here. And remember, his wisdom far exceeds ours. So if you think, oh, that's not, his way is not really the right way. If I humble myself and I get busy serving other people, that's not going to be right. I'm not going to get happy. I'm going to do it my way. Try his way. He is a whole lot smarter than you are. And he's been around a whole lot longer. Uh, and he tells us the ex exact opposite. opposite. He tells us that we will know genuine happiness when our hearts are more like his and when our hands are more like his. Uh, always ready to take the part of the good Samaritan and help others. It's easy to make ourselves miserable. I can do that in no time. I got it down to an art. <laughs> it's easy to make ourselves miserable by dwelling on thoughts of how we are not being treated fairly or how we don't receive the kindness and the respect or the recognition that we think we deserve. But if we truly want to be happy, I should say blessed, because happiness, you know, well, you can be happy even in miserable happenstances and circumstances if you know the Lord and have the right perspective. But if you really want to please God and to be blessed in your life, we must think far more of others and far less of ourselves. That's the best formula. Here's, here is the happiness formula given by Jesus Christ. Holiness plus humbleness equals happiness. All right, let's look now at verses 18 to 22 and continue on with our lesson here. Starting in verse 18, if I speak not, I, I speak not of you all. See, Jesus was also a southerner, wasn't he? Just like Paul. I speak not of you all. <laughs> I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41.9 right there. 
Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. I am, really. And then he says, verily, verily again. See, he said verily, verily back in verse 16. Does everybody remember what verily, verily means? Of a truth, of a truth, this is important. Listen. Now he says it for the second time in these few verses. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said what? Verily, verily, again, three times in just six verses, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake, which means literally not knowing of whom he spake. Well, after speaking briefly about humility and happiness, the Lord's thoughts now turned to the one in his presence who would never know happiness when he said i speak not of you all remember how he had uh, earlier said to peter that he was already clean remember when he told peter he was already clean and then he had added the words but not all that was back in verse 11 i think um and then he explained or verse 11 did explain that he was referring to the fact that judas was not clean right he was not saved is what he was saying there. And now just a few verses later, in verse 18, the Lord was saying that not all the disciples would know happiness. Not all of them were clean and not all of them would know happiness because not all of them would act upon his divine formula of holiness plus humility. And then he said to his men, I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Let me just read that um, psalm. That's a, a messianic prophecy that was given back in Psalm 41.9. And here's what it says. You don't need to go there, but I'll read it to you. It says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. That was written all the way back in the time of David. It was a prophecy about Judas's betrayal of the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting. I thought this was interesting. I learned this this week, so I don't think this is in your notes. But the term in the Greek, lifted up his heel. Number one, what does that remind you of? The heel. What does it send you all the way back to? Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, first time the evangelical message is given in the scripture when God said that the seed of the serpent would uh, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But, of course, he would crush the serpent's head. That takes us all the way back there. And, of course, we know who's hovering over Judas right now is the serpent himself. But that term in Greek, lifted up his heel, is the picture of a horse lifting up his hoof to kick someone. So what I got to think about that. It's like Judas is going to kick me. He's lifting up his heel to kick me, just like a horse. And the Lord had just washed his heel, didn't he? Um, but I got to think about Judas. First of all, he kicked the Lord. And what's the next thing he's going to do? kiss kicked and kissed wow what what betrayal what hypocrisy what spurned love that is what contempt for one who had spent so much time with the lord and eaten many you know many meals they shared together well here's the big question did jesus know when he chose judas as an apostle that he would be his betrayer did he know yes and here's the answer Jesus himself said, I know whom I have chosen. He wasn't surprised that Judas turned out to be a false disciple because he knew all along. We saw this last week. He knew it all the way back in his early Galilean ministry because in John 6, 70, he said to his men, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? I got to thinking about, you know, they, were, they never knew it was Judas and they probably thought one of us is a devil. I bet they thought it was Peter. Because remember when Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan? And Peter was the one who always seemed to put his foot in his mouth. Uh, they probably thought, yeah, that's that old Peter. You know, he's always getting in trouble. 
And we also learned from uh, John 6, 64, that Jesus knew from the beginning who should betray him. It actually says that. So he knew. Judas was part of the necessary process to bring about the Lord's death, which was a vital necessity for our redemption, for the redemption of the world. And Judas was the fulfillment of that prophecy I just read to you in Psalm 41.9, also the fulfillment of another prophecy which is found in Psalm 55, and I'll read to that to you later on. And then we already saw this one, Zechariah 11, remember verses 12 and 13, told us how much money he would get for selling out the Son of God, 30 pieces of silver. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Also, he's a picture and type, or he's the fulfillment of the picture and type, type of Ahithophel. David's close friend who betrayed him and uh, joined the rebellion of Absalom, David's son. But nonetheless, even though Judas was a fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, nonetheless, Judas, of his own volition, his own will, betrayed the Lord. Christ did draw Judas to himself. Uh, when he chose him, he chose him, first of all, to be a disciple and then later on to be a sent one going out in his power and in his name um, as an apostle. He did move upon Judas's heart to quicken his mind so that he understood that Jesus was indeed the long awaited Messiah of Israel. But Judas rebelled against the drawing power of Christ. And he rejected the quickening power of Christ. Do I believe in resistible grace? Oh, yes, absolutely. People resist God's grace every day. Now, there are some that don't. They say it's irresistible grace. And if he draws you, you, can't, you cannot resist. But that's not how I see the scripture at all. You can resist. We all have resisted in one way or another. But anyway, that's another subject. When a person continues to willfully, willfully resist the drawing and quickening power of God's spirit, that person puts himself or herself in a very dangerous position. It's scary sometimes for people who sit in church week after week after week and they hear the gospel message over and over and over and they continue to resist and to resist and to harden their necks and harden their hearts because there comes a point we know not where where the Lord himself might harden them. We have a picture of this in Pharaoh, right? He kept hardening his heart until finally God, God hardened his heart and he had gone beyond the point of no return. Genesis 6, 3 says, My spirit shall not always strive with men. When an individual is given much light, you know, the light of truth, and much evidence about the true God, just like Pharaoh and just like Judas, and he rejects that light and his heart grows harder and harder, he is in grave, serious danger of getting to the point where then God hardens his heart. And that's what it says. And, and once he's to that point, he's without remedy for his soul. He's without remedy. And that's exactly what it says in Proverbs 29.1. It says, he that often reproveth, he that being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be, be destroyed and that without remedy. That reads funny, but that's exactly what it, it says, what I just told you. It tells us in Romans 1.28 that God will give them over to a reprobate mind. Do we see people like that? Did any of you see Bill O'Reilly um, having a debate with Mar, whatever his name, Bill, um, what's his name? No, not Moyer, Mar, Mar. Did you see that? Oh, did it make you upset? Oh, it made me so, Bill Mar is a, some kind of, commentator or something, a journalist, whatever he is, I don't know what he is, but he's an atheist. And he was debating Bill O'Reilly about, it, you know, there is no true God. And it made me so frustrated because Bill O'Reilly was doing a pathetic job at defending the Bible. You know, uh, the one guy, the atheist, said that, well, you know, who can believe in Noah's Ark? And, and Bill O'Reilly says, well, we don't, you know, we don't take the Old Testament literally. It's just spiritual and he said, I don't really even read the Old Testament. I concentrate on the New Testament. And, and, and the guy's point was, well, you know, what kind of God would kill people if they work on Sunday? Now, Bill Maher is Jewish. 
He's Jewish. Of course, he's really an atheist. But I, th- I wanted so bad to say, you know what? The Old Testament never says it'll kill anybody if they work on Sunday. Because the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, you egghead. You're Jewish and you didn't even know that. <laughs> you should have seen me sitting in front of that television. I was so, oh. But anyway. Why did, why did Jesus bring up the subject of a betrayer at this point, do you think? Last supper, last night, it's going to be killed, you know, die on the cross that afternoon. Why does he bring up the subject of his betrayer? Why didn't he? Well, he did do it. He hinted at it earlier, but he was he was preparing his men now this is all about his last minutes with his men his last hours are all about preparing them for what lay ahead if he did not tell them about the soon coming betrayal by one of them the results could have been absolutely horrible if without any previous warnings from the lord regarding a coming betrayer judas had just shown up you know jesus had never said anything about it never gave any indication that he knew about judas And Judas just showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane with all the religious rulers and the accompanying Roman guard in order to betray Jesus. Then the disciples, the other 11, would have, might have concluded that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. If he was the true son of God, wouldn't he have known about Judas ahead of time? Wouldn't he have known that one of his own was a deceiver? And then, you know, surely the Messiah of Israel would never have been so deceived as to select a deceiver to be one of his apostles. Or so they would think, naturally, they would think that. So, you know, they would have been really confused if they hadn't known ahead of time. They knew ahead of time, they just never quite got who it was, but he told them here. So he tells them, and he tells them, he's telling them before it comes to pass, so that when it does come to pass, they will understand and realize who he is. He says, before it comes to pass, one who has eaten bread with me is going to lift up his heel against me. And so this way, by telling them in advance, and when all of this comes to pass later that night, Judas comes and kisses the Lord and and brings all the guys to arrest him. Uh, they would remember his predictions and be reinforced, not hindered in their belief, but they would be reinforced in their belief that he was exactly who he claimed to be. And who did he claim to be? Look again at verse 19. He says, now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, I am. Now you say, oh, wait a minute. It says he, but you know by now that any time a word is in italics in your Bibles, what does that mean, ladies? It's not in the original manuscript. So literally he says, when it comes to pass, ye may believe that I am. Now that's the second time in this little discourse that he uses the name I am. I am is God's name. What did he tell Moses' name was at the burning bush? I am that I am. He was affirming to his disciples, including Judas, who's listening to all this? Judas. So he's affirming to Judas that he is omniscient because he's God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows what goes on within every heart. You know, through Ezekiel, God said this. He said, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Ezekiel 11.5. God knows every little thought that passes through our minds. This revelation of Jesus should have shaken Judas to the core, shouldn't it? If I was Judas, I'd, I mean, if he, if he knows that, there, that one of us is going to betray him and he knows my heart and he's omniscient, he is, I am, you think that he would just instantly fall on his face and repent, but he didn't, did he? He didn't. Willfully, he didn't. Now, in verse 20, the Lord went on to say, Verily, verily, for the second time, also back in verse 16, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Who sent Jesus? God. What he's doing here is desiring for his apostles to know that their divine calling, he's speaking now really to the other 11, that their divine calling was not going to be affected just because of the defection of, of one of them. Otherwise, they might have thought or wondered if the defection of Judas would discredit the rest of them. 
before the people. Jesus knew how apt people are to despise work done in his name if the worker himself proves to be false or a hypocrite or apostate. And so the words of verse 20 were spoken in order to teach the disciples and to teach you and I to look beyond the human instrument. I know of, of women, uh, one woman who was saved by um, a man on television who is just totally apostate, but he used some scripture and she got saved. Look beyond the instrument to what? What's the important? The word of God. So that's what he's telling us. Look beyond the human instrument. The Lord has the right to use whoever he pleases. If the message itself is from him, the word of God, then if it, the word, is received, that person is receiving Christ. And the one who receives Christ receives the one who sent Christ, who is, of course, God the Father. Some people had probably believed in Jesus. Think of this. Some people had probably believed that Jesus was the true Messiah, the true Lord, who had come to be their Savior through the testimony, the witness of Judas Iscariot. Because he went out, back in Matthew 10, he went out with all the rest, and it says he preached the gospel, and he did miracles, healed people, and whatever. So some people probably came to true faith through the proclamation of Judas. But that would in no wise mean that they were not really saved just because Judas was not saved. Right? You following me? As the Scottish author and preacher Arthur Pink wrote, he said this, It shouldn't matter what color a mailman's heart is (laughs) or if he is pleasant or unpleasant as long as we get the right letter. I like that. Well, after giving the revelation that one of his own would lift his heel against him, we next learn that Jesus was what? Look at verse 21. He was troubled in spirit. Now, what was he troubled about? Well, there's probably several things that troubled his spirit at this time. He would have been troubled by the very presence of evil in the room. Jesus could see what none of the others could see. He could see that Satan was just like a little helicopter hovering over Judas, just ready to possess him. Because just in a a few minutes, he will possess him. And the Lord was feeling also, we can be sure he was troubled in spirit because he was feeling the bitter sorrow of seeing one of his own men deliberately turn against him. Don't you know it broke David's heart that Ahithophel, his beloved friend, had turned against him and, you know, kicked him like a horse? Of course, it hurt Jesus's heart that Judas did this to him. Few things hurt more than the wounds of, of a friend or the wounds of ingratitude and betrayal. We've talked about that before. He was also troubled in spirit because of the hypocrisy of Judas. You know, Jesus had a holy hatred of sin that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. I mean, it's just way beyond us because we're so saturated with living in a sin-cursed world. But he had a holy hatred. I mean, you can imagine if even one little thing... Uh, took the whole world into the sin we're in, you know, because Adam disobeyed, how much he hates sin. And uh, it's likely that his troubled spirit was his knowledge that his own sinless sacrifice the next day for the sins of the whole world uh, would not benefit Judas. Why? Because Judas would never repent. He would regret what he did, but he wouldn't repent. And therefore, we know he committed suicide. By the way, so did Ahithophel, David's friend. He wound up by hanging himself, same way that um, Judas did. But we know he would commit suicide in a state of unbelief. And that troubled the Lord's soul because he loved Judas. And he kept reaching out to him, even up to the very end. And yet he knew his sacrifice the next day would do Judas absolutely no good because he would never receive it for himself. So in his anguish, the Lord told his men as clearly as he could that it would be one of them who would betray him. He says, I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Verse 21. Can't you just imagine the shock 
that ripped through the hearts of the men that when they heard this. This was just incredible. They, they had been very, very aware that the Lord had a lot of enemies out there, mostly the religious rulers. So when he had pr- predicted a betrayal before this, you know, he had told them he'd be betrayed. But they probably thought, yeah, well, you have so many enemies, of course, you're eventually going to get betrayed. And then even when, I'm suffering from a sore throat, so excuse me. <clears throat> but even when he had then said in verse 18 that he would be betrayed by one who had eaten with him, still their minds aren't focused on one of them because the Lord had eaten with many people, right? Think of when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. He'd eaten over the last three and a half years with many, many people. So they probably thought, you know, well, he's speaking about somebody out there. We don't know who. But now they finally realized that he was actually speaking about one of them. He made that abundantly clear. And we are told, now I want you to move over to Matthew 26, please, real quick. We're almost through here. But when they finally, this finally dawns on them that it's going to be one of the 12, we are told that they were exceeding sorrowful. Exceeding sorrowful. Let's look at verses 20, uh, 22 to 25. Matthew 26, starting at verse 22. Right, If you look right above it, it says, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And then they were exceeding sorrowful. And began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. The disciples were exceeding sorrowful. Not only were they extremely saddened by this news but they were perplexed john 13 22 i did read that earlier it tells us that they were at a real loss to know who it was which one of them he was speaking about how could any of them use his intimacy with christ to do such a treacherous thing you know and to have him betrayed and killed they knew he was He had talked about being killed, so they knew the betrayal would lead to the killing. How could any of them do that? They'd spend day and night together, camped out together, walked together, eaten together, all the things they'd shared. It was just impossible to think about. And the strange thing is that Judas was perhaps the least among the group to be suspected. His position as the treasurer indicates that the other men esteemed him of high integrity and beyond reproach. He could probably talk the talk of the spiritual realm better than any of them. You know, listen to Judas preach the gospel. It was just smooth as butter. He had his act together. Um, and this is actually foretold of him in Psalm fifty-five twenty-one. It says this about Judas. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. You see, you thought I made that up. <laughs> smoother than butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet were they drawn swords. Psalm fifty-five twenty-one. You know, Judas had the external behavior and the tongue of a saint. But what kind of heart did he have? A heart of a treacherous sinner. Don't be deceived by Hollywood about Judas. He was a willfully wicked person. Well, in the midst of their agony over this latest news, uh, the disciples began to discuss which one of them could do this horrible thing. That's in Luke twenty two twenty three. It says they started discussing among themselves who in the world could do this. And to their credit, now we have to give them some credit. This is last week they were arguing, and now this is a good thing about the disciples. <laughs> to their credit, the primary concern of each of them, Judas excluded, was his own heart. They had just come, hadn't they? They had just come face to face with their pride and with their selfishness through the Lord's teaching in a towel. They had been arguing about who was the greatest, and then he stoops down and washes their feet. So the true disciples are humbled by this. 
And they're really, they've examined their hearts, and they've seen how selfish and proud they were. And so now they know how desperately wicked and deceitful the heart can be. And so they're thinking, do I within me have the potential to do or say something that would actually betray the Lord? They're probably thinking, I wouldn't do it on purpose. But Peter, you know, Peter would be thinking, oh, my, I'm always getting in trouble. I'm always saying the wrong thing. What if I say the wrong thing and wind up betraying the Lord? So they're all perplexed. But the good thing is that they're examining their own hearts, right? Each of the 11 true disciples asked Jesus, Lord, is it I? While the one false disciple omitted the word Lord, replacing it with the title Master, which is Rabbi. That's in um, 2625. Distinguishing from the question posed by the others, Matthew tells us that Judas asked Master, is it I? And the word master, master just means like rabbi. And it's not kedia, it's not lord. It's uh, more the word ra- rabbi. He was the only one who didn't ask with a genuine heart desire to know if he was capable of such a deed. Why? He already knew he was capable of such a deed because he'd already gone to betray him. But even if he had been exposed, why didn't Jesus just say it was Judas? Why do you think at the, at the, he didn't just say, one of you will betray me and it's Judas? You know why I think? Because Peter would have killed him right there. <laughs> you know how he took out his sword in the garden and chopped off Malchus's ear. I think he would have killed him if he knew. And then the Lord wouldn't have been betrayed and, you know, wouldn't have been arrested and, and killed. Um, he, so he didn't come right out and say who it was. But even if he had, what do you think Judas would have done? I think if Judas had been exposed here, he would have justified himself to the other men. He would have said, I am going to expose a fraud. He is not the true Messiah. He would have given all his little reasonings. And he would have said that he, he's just going to reap a little benefit for the time that he had wasted in following this man for the past three years. He might have been so eloquent and smooth as butter that he might even have convinced some of the other ones. I don't know. But Jesus didn't name him. So in order to keep up his hypocritical show before the others... Uh, as well as to determine whether or not Jesus did in fact know it was him, Judas asked, Master, is it I? And then the response straight from the lips of Jesus was what? Thou hast said. And in our modern English, what does that mean? You said it. Yes, Judas, it is you. And because Judas sat probably on the Lord's immediate left uh, the dialogue between the two of them here in Matthew 26, 25 was said privately. You know, he, the Lord would be leaning on his left arm and they could have just had that conversation. Judas whisper, Master, is it I? Thou hast said. That was not heard by the others, probably not heard by the others. And that would explain by why none of them knew that it was Judas until he showed up. Or maybe John did with the sop thing, but we're not sure about that either. But anyway, the Lord's answer to the disciples' anxiety about who the betrayer might be did nothing to alleviate either their curiosity or their anguish of soul because he merely emphasized the fact that the betrayer was indeed one of them. They didn't know yet who it was. He told them that the one who dipped his hand with him in the dish. Now, we're going to actually go over a Passover supper one of these days. We're going to go, you know, do the whole thing with the unleavened bread and the lamb shank bone and all your little glasses will be set out in front of you. Um, and you'll see that they have this little dish of uh, bitter herbs and then you have another little thing of corrosive paste. And I don't know which one they were dipping in, but he said, you know, one that dips his hand with me in the dish. That means two of them would dip at the same time. But, you know, they're all dipping because they've all been eating, and none of them probably paid attention to the time when he actually dipped his hand the same time Judas did, except who would notice that? Judas. So what he was really doing, he was, the others were confused because they're all dipping, you know, like me yesterday with my tacos and my salsa, dip, dip, dip. They're all dipping. Nobody's paying attention and, except Judas. When he heard that, he would have known that he dipped at exactly the same. Maybe their fingers even bumped one another. 
So really through this, he's telling Judas, yes, I do know who you are. And then the Lord, in a most ver- a very, very serious remark, which was a future attempt, really, to gain Judas's attention, spoke of the betrayer's sin from the divine perspective. He said that the horrible act of betrayal was to be used by God to fulfill Scripture. Yes, that's you know divine, the divine predetermination of everything. Um, the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. He will be betrayed, he will go to the cross, and he will die, and then he'll rise on the third day, just as Scripture says. But what does he go on to say? Woe unto him, unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. You see, Jesus would go the way God had predetermined which was, as I said, by betrayal, suffering, crucifixion. But Judas's guilt was not lessened because of that fact. Woe to that man. His eternal destiny is so absolutely terrifying that Jesus said it would have been better for him if he had never been born. You know, I think about people who experience hell, the lake of fire for all of eternity, I'm glad the the Lord puts a veil over our minds that we really can't even begin to understand how horrific it must be. Because if we did, I I don't know, I mean, our loved ones and people we know that have gone there, I don't think we could keep going. It would just break us so totally. But um, I was thinking about, would he be able to say that for everybody? You know, it would be better for you if you hadn't been born. Well, a lot of people have at least have children and maybe some of those children get saved. So it wouldn't really have been better if that person had never been born. Are you following me? I'm just thinking out loud. Like my father went went into eternity lost. But I don't think the Lord would say to him, it'd be better if you hadn't been born because he had children. I'm one of the children and I'm born again. And, you know, so I'm glad my dad was born. But Judas apparently, you know, didn't have any offspring. And he, he went to his own place. I can't imagine. It must be the deepest, deepest part of the lake of fire where he's still suffering today. And it would have been better if he had never been born. But in saying all that, he was reaching out to him. He was still trying to get his attention. Judas, Judas, Judas. But he willfully kept on resisting grace. All right. Thank you for your time. Um, I got a watch. My husband bought me a watch. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. Thank you for the, the love of Jesus who is our example, and may we follow him every day and never forget, Lord, that he truly is who he claimed to be, Master, Lord, and the great I Am, who was willing to condescend, the greatest condescension this world has ever seen, that he was willing to leave heaven to come down here and make himself like one of us, and go to an old cross and die the shameful death of crucifixion just so that we could spend eternity with him. Lord, I pray that no one here would ever follow in Judas's footsteps, that no one here is deceived, even maybe self-deceived, and that she would truly, truly search her heart like the other disciples did and, and say, Lord, am I truly saved? Am I truly saved? And if there's any doubt, I pray she would make that settle that today, Lord, so that she does not experience that lake of fire that we don't even want to think about. But we need to because we need to warn men and women and young people that it is real. It isn't just allegorical. It's real. Lord, we love you. I pray that we be salt and light this week and bring us all back safely next week for we pray, Jesus, in your blessed, wonderful name. Amen.